Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 46 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, what matters is the upcoming Ryder Cup. It's always the most entertaining golf of any given two-year period, and Glen Eagles is shaping up as yet another enthralling counter between the U.S. and European teams. We'll get a bit of a European perspective today from the Irish golf desk's Brian Keogh, but first... Let me introduce my cohorts on this podcasting adventure from the US. Missing his first major golf event for the year, by my reckoning, author, blogger, commentator, and so much more, Jeff Shackleford. I think that's right, isn't it, Shack? You've been to all four yeah. this year, have you not? I have, yes. I will be uh, I will be missing this, but uh, uh, happily watching on television at some very odd hours, I'm sure. We'll get, that's what we get here in Australia all the time. Yeah. So welcome to, uh, <laughs> to our world. From here in Australia, one quarter of the Ogilvy, Clayton, Cocking and Mead course design business, as well as a magazine columnist and former touring pro, and like Shackleford, so much more, Mike Clayton. Clayton, I'm guessing you're a fan of the Ryder Cup. Looking forward to events unfolding at Glen Eagles this week? Yeah, the Ryder Cup will be great, as usual. As usual, yeah. Match play, you can't go past, especially when there's something to play for and it's not money. I think that's perhaps... One of the keys to it. To our special guest this episode, a man who has been as busy as any golf writer can imagine in recent times. The rise of Irish golf has been pretty remarkable. Rory McIlroy, of course, world number one. Graham McDowell and Darren Clark, both major winners in the last half decade. And Podrake Harrington on a tear in the year, years before that as well. Not to mention Shane Lowry running second in Wales as we speak this week. It's a great pleasure to welcome the Irish Golf Desk's Brian Keogh to the show. Brian, thanks for taking some time to chat. No, pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. And what's going on with Irish golf? We used to get this when we had sort of the Norman era and then we had a, a good period there, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, lots of Australian players. Everyone asked the secret, what's the secret to Australian golf? What's the secret to Irish golf? Yeah, well, good question. I mean, it's a bit like the old story about the buses. You know, you wait for a long time for one and then all of a sudden, you know, five or six all come along together. It's it's a little bit of a golden generation, all right? I think McElroy probably is a little bit of an exception. He's just one of those talents that, you know, appears on the, on the planet every uh, every you know 60 or 70 years so uh, I mean he's a little bit of an exception but you know Clark Harrington uh, Shane Lowry Paul McGinley all those guys they are all products of the uh, you know the golfing union of Ireland system the uh, the the coaching system that was put in place you know about 20 20 years ago 25 years ago and uh, you know they've all found their feet and uh, and and on one big events one big tournament so it's uh, it's you know it's been a bit of a, a knock on effect once Harrington won a major then everybody else said, well hold on a second Podrick Harrington can win a major, I think I might have a chance too, you know, so... It's not a knock on Podrick. <laughs> not a knock on Podrick, not a knock on Podrick, but it did have an effect on, on, on the Irish and certainly on a lot of the Europeans too. It's, it's funny, isn't it? just on that point, Clates, isn't it? Players look at other players that they're familiar with achieve something they weren't sure they could achieve, and it says to the, the other player, hey, if he can do it, I can do it. It's a little bit odd that, isn't it, in some ways? Well, it's not odd. I mean... I mean it happened here, not so much with Greg, but with, I think, Wayne Grady and Ian Baker Finch. I think guys, you know, the generation below them saw them play well in America and that sent this whole generation of Australians to America. So, it's, yeah, you know, I think when people see their contemporaries do well, it always – I mean, Seve really started that. I mean, Seve was the guy who showed those others that you could play well in America and win majors. Mm. And, uh, yeah, Fantastic. So uh, that's all terrific, Brian. But what we really wanted to get to, well, certainly to start off with, was the Ryder Cup coming up this week. I think you're packing as we speak to head off to Glen Eagles from the other side of the world here. I mean, I, I love the Ryder Cup. I think a lot of Australians do, most golfers do, because it's such an enthralling match each week. But it feels from this side of the world just a little bit flat this year. Have I got that right? Is it is it just because we're on the other side of the world? Is it is it as exciting as previous Ryder Cups? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think there's might be as much needle as there has been in you know in previous years. There hasn't been much spark yet, but I think that's uh, that'll probably change as the uh, as the days goes on. No, I think there's a huge amount of excitement over here about the uh, about the Ryder Cup. Even just you know you switch on your TV and Sky Sports now have a a dedicated Ryder Cup channel, so that's running 24 hours a day, and you got reruns of all the uh, all the previous matches, which are uh, you know wetting the appetites of uh, all the fans here. And I believe you know we're going to have about 50,000 a day there as well. So you can't get a bus ticket you can't get a train ticket you know it's um it's it's going to be huge and and Scotland you know home of golf so it's uh, I think the atmosphere is going to be uh, really terrific and uh, two great lineups as well so the golf should be absolutely fantastic yeah well absolutely and of course it's it's always the great sport isn't it every two years about the teams and particularly the captains picks um run us through your thoughts on well, both sides were, I suppose, where there was there was uh, more so the Americans, but a little bit of controversy on each side. Stephen Gallagher, of course, being picked uh, by Paul McGinley. A lot of people saying, "Oh, just because he's a, a home player, lives down the road there from Glen Eagles." What was your take on the captain's pick on the on the European side? Yeah, I think uh, really, you know, as a as a stalwart European Tour player as well, I think Paul McGinley wouldn't have been able to turn up at another European Tour event if he hadn't picked Stephen Gallagher. You know, the way he the way he played. I mean, he you know he went into that final event and you know he knew exactly what they had to do. He had to he had to put in a performance and you know with uh, after twenty seven holes, I think he was uh, he was missing the cut and you know came home in thirty. You know, and uh, played fantastically well at the weekend. So he was he was right there all the way through the qualifying campaign, and I think he. Uh, he was a pretty much a no-brainer for uh, for uh, McGinley to pick him, considering he's uh, got a pretty good record around uh, Glen Eagles as well. You know, in the Johnny Walker Championship with uh, several top ten finishes there and good performances. So I think he was a uh, he was pretty much a given. Ian Poulter, I don't think needs any introduction either. I think uh, you know he was. Everybody knows what he can bring to a to a Ryder Cup team, to a European team, and uh, I think he was always going to get picked. And the only controversial one really was. Between Westwood and uh, and Lee Don and Luke Donald, and um, you know, it was obviously a very close call. But I know McGinley has been a huge fan of uh, Lee Westwood for a long, long time. They they were former stablemates under uh, under Chubby Chandler Chandler for many years. They uh, you know played in uh, three Ryder Cups together, and uh, you know he just he's just a big admirer of what Westwood brings to a team, especially in uh, in that team room where they're going to need some uh, some some strong characters in there to. Uh, to be the uh, to be the leaders there, so I think uh, you know I think a pretty good pretty good selections really. It's hard to argue with them. I know what Donald brings to the equation, but uh, you know, and perhaps he might have been hoping that Donald made it, and uh, instead of maybe Stephen Gallagher with uh, you know with his short game and his uh, his ability in, in in foursomes golf and that partnership he had with uh, Sergio Garcia especially. But um, you know, I think it's a it's a pretty pretty formidable looking uh, European lineup. Yeah, indeed. And Clay, uh, Shaq, what about on the American side? There was no shortage of talk about the captain's picks on that side as well. Particularly, I suppose, Webb Simpson is the one that sort of stood out to people as uh, perhaps the least likely of the picks. What was your take on the U.S. Ryder Cup captain's picks? Yeah, that's the one I, I have an issue with. Uh, Hunter Mahan was sort of the uh, pick of the moment because he won an event near the, the deadline and hasn't really played very well since, uh, but is a, a pretty solid, proven uh, player. The uh, the Webb Simpson selection, though, I, I just am perplexed by. Uh, I'm not sure that Captain Watson really uh, made a lot of sense with, with what he had said all year, uh, describing who he was looking for and, and somebody playing well and also somebody playing consistently. And Chris Kirk was that person. And uh, he his, his thinking on Webb Simpson just didn't really uh, impress me a whole lot. And... and um, we shall see. And, and, of course, it's since then, uh, in the last two events since the picks were made, Kirk 
beat Simpson by uh, something like twenty-one or twenty-three shots. I can't remember. I get, I get, he, it, but it was it was a rout. He he just absolutely uh, uh, pummeled uh, uh, Simpson, and and uh, and of course Billy Horschel got hot after the the deadline and and uh, uh, was just stunning, really, in in his consistency those last three weeks. And uh, what a shame that he's not going because what a what a fun player he would be with kind of the the, the uh, uh, rah rah stuff and getting emotional and he he could have been our uh, our Ian Poulter. He seems purpose built for the Ryder Cup, Billy Horschel, yeah. doesn't he? he uh, yeah, <laughs> it is uh, it is interesting. What do you mean? Thirteen and a half million dollars in three weeks, Shaq. So yeah, stunning. Yeah, and, and you know obviously it helps that 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 uh, ten of it comes from the FedEx Cup, but uh, God, he just played incredibly. Indeed, of course. Uh, 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 Always a big part of the the Ryder Cup, particularly in the two years leading up to it, is the captains, uh, Brian. And Paul McGinley is an interesting character, probably not as high profile outside of Ireland, but a well-known player. He's played here in Australia, I think most people know of Paul McGinley, but a really intriguing character, of course, since he's had the captaincy. I've read a couple of sort of feature pieces on him. Um, He's a much more interesting character than I realise. He's uh, and, uh, and, and has done an amazing, a fantastic job as the captain, hasn't he, so far? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the feeling would be that Paul McGinley has, you know, has done, you know, a huge amount of the work already. I mean, he's done an awful lot of groundwork. And I mean, I don't know if you if you read the piece by Kevin Garside in the uh, in the Independent there uh, t- today, which was, um, you know, just describing, uh, you know, it was with uh, Eddie Jordan, the Formula One, um, uh, former Formula One boss. And uh, he's a very close friend of Paul McGinley. He's even caddied for him in an event in Germany a few years ago. And he was explaining, you know, how uh, McGinley uh, said to him, "Look, I want to, I want to get to know Victor Dubuisson. You know, you've got a place in Monaco. You've got the yacht there. Can we uh, arrange a dinner?" And uh, you know, met them on the yacht. Dubuisson turned up with the girlfriend and a bottle of the most expensive Bordeaux, I think it was, that you can find. And uh, you know, he um, he sat down with them for for several hours, and uh, he really got to know the guy. So that just shows you the, um, you know, the the, the level of detail that. Uh, Paul McGinley is prepared to go to to uh, to get to know uh, these guys, and I think he knows you know, every single one of one of the players mm-hmm. on those on that team extremely well, and that's probably one of the big advantages he have over Tom Watson. In that, I wonder how well Tom Watson knows the the guys in his team compared to uh, Paul McGinley and uh, knowing the way they tick. That's certainly been uh, the issue that's been raised about Tom Watson. Has it? I think the thing about McGinley, Brian, that I sort of didn't realize he's got such a background in Gaelic football and team sports. I didn't realize, in fact. Golf, not his first love. So it kind of happened yeah. to be good enough at it to become professional. But given the choice, it wouldn't have been golf for him. No, I mean, he broke his kneecap when he was 19 playing Gaelic football. And, uh, you know, he was playing a little bit of summer golf with a few friends of his from the Gaelic football team. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually a member of the same club. And I remember watching him, you know, he was off about six or seven, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, he, uh, you know, he, he did his knee and he, uh, he was down to scratch in a couple of years. He won a couple of youth championships, got on the uh, got on the Irish team, you know, won a couple of uh, big Irish championships, won the Scottish won the Scottish uh, Youth Championship as well and, uh, you know, was was playing uh, against the likes of Harrington and uh, and uh, Darren Clark, which would have been, who would have been more of a contemporary of his and uh, all of a sudden he's uh, he's on the Walker Cup team, you know, so he was uh, a very late developer, you know, a, low, a sort of a slow burner really, Paul McGinley, uh, 
didn't have a, a fantastically lucrative career on the on the European tour in terms of in terms of win. I think only only three wins and uh, you know the uh, the Volvo Masters being the, the biggest of those. But you know in team sports, you know he was a obviously huge huge lover of the uh, the atmosphere in um, in the Gaelic football dressing room. Loved being around with his teammates. You know played a lot of soccer as well. And uh, you know his all his success has come in in team play. You know three Ryder Cups he played in three wins. Played in a couple of Seve trophies. They won those as well. You know, played in a in, in in three Royal trophies. I think they won two of those. You know, so that's not a bad record at all. And he's been captain of a, a couple of Seve trophies teams as well, and uh, won both of those. So he's got a pretty uh, pretty good record uh, in team play, to say the least. And uh, he just loves it. You know, he really does. He's uh, he, he talks to all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life, from you know, from, from soccer managers. You know, like uh, you know Martin O'Neill, who's now the uh, the Irish the Republic of Ireland manager, and um, Gaelic football managers. Uh, Trevor Brooking, the uh, West Ham footballer, he's a very close friend of his. So he, there's people from all walks of life that uh, that he speaks to and uh, gets information from. He's a real networker. He's a guy that's uh, very inquisitive, always keen. To know what you're doing, what's going on, how does that work, and uh, just to uh, just a, just an interesting, uh, busy, busy sort of a uh, sort of guy, and uh, a guy that's um, I don't think he's going to be outsmarted as a captain. His players might get outplayed, but uh, I certainly think he'll do a very good job. It certainly looks from the outside, no stone unturned. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, now that that brings up an important point, though, Rod. What Brian? What's his background in law? Does he have an understanding of? Um what kind of things can be said and discussed in the team room related to uh, pending court cases? Is that something that uh, he, he's going to be prepared to handle? Yeah, I think, you know, when we, we had a chat with him at St. Andrews back in, in, in July, there was a, he was doing a corporate day and we you know, we were speaking about this when it was just after uh, Gray McDowell's name had sort of been brought into the uh, the McElroy versus Horizon court case because of, um, well, the, the McElroy's lawyers more than anybody else, you know, about, about contracts and what who was getting paid and what percentage he was getting paid and who had shares and what they had. And he said, look, I've had a word with the two guys. You know, they both said that's not going to be a problem. It's it's more stuff between lawyers than anything else and between, uh, you know, their former uh, management group. And that made things very awkward. But, uh, you know, on a personal level, things might might have been a little bit strained here and there so uh, but he's 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 adamant that that's not going to be a problem so you know uh, we'll wait and see I, I I I'm very curious to see if he's if he'll pair them at all together uh, yeah. over the uh, over the 3 days that's uh, that's the thing that I I'm just I'm just curious about I have a, I have a funny feeling that they might not did he not yeah. say just last week that he'd be surprised if they weren't paired together? Yeah, yeah, he did. Sort of, yeah. Which is, seems odd. Of course, he did. The, the whole legal thing between McElroy and McDowell and all that, it's all, that's all interesting, uh, interesting sort of stuff. What sort of impact does that have in the team room, uh, Brian? I mean, have we, is that, I'm not is sure that, that potentially that... divisive for the European team? I, I don't. I don't honestly don't think so. I don't think that's going to be uh, get much mileage in the in the team room at the uh, at the Ryder Cup. I think I might get a, get a bit of mileage in the uh, in the media room. All right, you know, in the interviews and in the in the run up to it, and there'll be a few probably a few more questions thrown at it. There's always uh, a lot of guys uh, at Ryder Cups that maybe haven't been on the golf beat, you know, for the entire year. Uh, a lot of uh, news news guys as well, maybe looking for a looking for a line, looking for something uh, juicy to to talk about. But uh, no, I think that'll be uh, batted away, and uh, I think they'll handle that 
handle that pretty well, I think. Um, but again, it's it's the pairings thing, you know. That's the uh, that's the interesting one, and I think you know Paul McGinley's had his had his eye on, on on quite a few pairings since you know since very early in the year. You know, when I go back to Tucson in the match play, I mean, I remember Graham McDowell, you know, getting beaten by uh, Wieson and saying, you know what, I wouldn't mind wouldn't mind a foursomes uh, with 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 that guy. So you know, I think that could be uh, a partnership that we might just see next week. Back to the captain's shack. McGinley seems the polar opposite of Watson in that sense, doesn't he? I mean, Watson's whole life has been about individual performance, excellence, and success. Uh, McGinley very much a, you know, might in a in a team background. What, what do you make of Watson's captaincy from the outside? Again, from the other side of the world, he doesn't look. To, he certainly doesn't look to have been as sharp as McGinley um, over the sort of eighteen months he's been in the job. No, I, I I've sensed that. Uh He's been thorough on some things and, and a little bit strange on a few uh, other points, and that's what's going to, I think, be fun. And, and as Brian alluded to, I, I just don't know how well he knows many of the players and, and their uh, idiosyncrasies and all that. And I, he, I have noticed in, in some of his recent interviews, he has started to sound a little bit less intense, kind of mentioning fun and ping pong. And, and, and that was always my concern, uh, was that he would... He would come in with this sort of uh, intense rah-rah. We've, we've, you know, America. We're going to stick it to him and fist bump and and uh, really get into it. And uh, I think he's come to realize that the success Fred Couples has had has been because he's been a little bit more laid back and uh, let's have a good time and uh, whatever happens happens kind of thing. And and I think in part because of the the team he he's been dealt without some uh, key players and. Uh, like Dustin Johnson and Tiger and Jason Duffner, that that's maybe uh, ultimately going to be a, a brilliant move on his part if he's able to shift and, and make it a more relaxed, fun event and play up the underdog thing, and and uh, they might just surprise Europe. It's always closer than we think it's going to be, isn't it, Brian? Yeah. Every time it comes around, we say, yeah. oh, you know, this team or that team is so far advanced, it's going yeah. to be whitewash. It never is, is it? Or rarely. Well, no, I mean, it, we, we could be, you know, really, you know, just, you know, but for, you know, a few strokes of fortune here or there, I mean, the United States could be, they could be going for four in a row, you know, this uh, next week, really. I mean, they won in 08, you know, very convincingly. In 2010, I think the weather played a huge part in uh, in Europe, getting over the line there with that extra session and the, you know, those extra foursomes. I think that was, uh, you know, huge for Europe to, to get over the uh, get over the line there. And then, well, we all know what happened the last time as well. I mean, Ian Poulter just uh, decided to go ballistic on, on, on Saturday and it just uh, turned things around. So, you know, it's 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 always close, and I think it was you know Rory McIlroy alluded to it, and um, he may have picked this up in a conversation with Paul McGinley that uh, you know Europe have won two of the last nine sessions, just two, and one of those was I think it might have been you know by by four or five points that extra session at the uh, a Celtic Manor, you know. So I mean, it's been it's been it's been very very tight indeed, and you know it's probably going to be tight again. I would say. I was listening, uh, you and I discussed very briefly by email the Irish golf podcast that I'm, I'm a fan of listening to with Joe, Joe, God, Joe, I can't remember his name, and Fionn Davidport and whatnot. They had Des Smith on this week, Brian Keogh, who's one of the yeah. five assistant captains, which is interesting, vice captains, mm. which is interesting in itself. And he was saying that, which I hadn't heard before, that the talk was at Medina that behind the scenes, it was a communication nightmare, that a lot of the players were very upset. They didn't know who was playing when and whatnot, and that, that things were a bit of a disaster behind the scenes. And luckily, they sort of pulled it out of the fire 
uh, as you say, late Saturday afternoon and then in the singles on Sunday. Had you heard anything to that effect previously? I hadn't, but um, he was saying yeah. that McGinley's main point was to make sure that didn't happen this time around. Yeah, there were there were there were a lot of things went on behind the scenes. I think at Medina, you know, with you know, there were a lot of there were players upset about not you know not playing. I mean, I think Peter Hansen retired to his room one afternoon, not to be seen again for the rest of the day. There were other things that I think McGinley had to take a hand in as well, personally, that uh, you know caused a few clashes as well. I mean, there are a lot of egos, uh, you know, in in these backroom teams sometimes with the with vice captains. So he's very carefully chosen who he's going to have. I mean, uh, one of the points I think Des Smith made, and you know, spoke to him probably the same. Same day, the the boys on all, uh, the golf podcast you're talking about, we're, we're talking to him was that uh, there were guys uh, who, who weren't involved in, in playing, who were sitting back in the in the locker room, the team room, going, oh, "I wonder am I playing this afternoon? Maybe maybe I should go out and practice. I don't know what's going on." So they had to send their wives out to try and find out, um, you know, wh- whether they were going to be playing or whether they weren't going to be playing. So this is why we have the extra. The, the fifth, um, you know, uh, vice captain or, you know, Jeff likes to call them the buggy drivers. <laughs> you know, the, the this fifth guy to, uh, you know, you have one guy with each match and you have the fifth guy floating around to uh, either stay with guys on the practice ground or be around the, uh, you know, the, the team room area and just to um, to do whatever needs to be done. And uh, I think that's that's why he has them there. So, um, you know, there's other reasons as well for the... Uh, for the particular five guys, you got two. Uh, you got two continental Europeans there as well, which is very important. You know that sometimes they can feel a little bit, maybe uh, you know, left out uh, when there's so many um, Britain, and, Britain uh, and Ireland uh, vice captains involved that they maybe feel a little bit uh, ignored. So you know, to have Olathabel there and to have Jimenez there, who'll obviously uh, you know bring a light-hearted feel to the to the team room, you know, will be important. I mean. Uh, Paul McGinley is not a guy for standing up and giving big rousing speeches. He's more a one-on-one, uh, arm around the shoulder type of guy, a uh, personal personal treatment guy. Whereas uh, I think if you know they require somebody to get up there and uh, and give the rousing speech, a la Ola Thabal at uh, Medina last time, you know he's he's there again if they need him, and they've got Torrance too for that kind of role. So, you know, I think he's 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 tried to think of all the scenarios and all the things that uh, he's seen over the years in Seve trophies and Ryder Cups that uh, didn't maybe work and stuff that really did work well, and uh, you know try to take all those things into account. And after that, it's. It's about pairings and, and and how guys play, but um, I think you know he's he's uh, he's been very assiduous in, in in the way he's gone about this. You know, this is his this is his major. We were talking about the Irish uh, major winners there at the tar- at the start of the program, and Paul McGinley, you know, doesn't have a major. He doesn't have uh, Tom Watson's you know, stature, obviously, in, in the game of golf. So uh, you know, this is his opportunity to uh, to make a bit of a mark. Clates, I'm just listening to some of the kerfuffle that uh, Brian's talking about there. This is so far removed from week-in, week-out professional golf for these guys, isn't it? I guess one of the great things about the Ryder Cup is that you get to see these great players well out of their comfort zone. All this stuff doesn't happen week-in, week-out, does it? No, it's obviously the... Well, we all know about the pressure and the end of it, and it's such a big event. It's You know, you, you, you see Kymer make that part, and you see Langer miss the putt he missed, and... Uh, obviously, there's no money involved, so it's not about the money. It's just about it's about being a part of a team and how, how big an event it is. But I, mean, I always wonder whether the, it's the most overrated job in sports, being a captain of a Ryder Cup team. Didn't you say mm. last time your mum could do it? I think that was your quote, <laughs> wasn't it? Before the 2012 <laughs> event? Yeah, I probably did. You know, um, in the end, it really comes down to how the guys played, doesn't it? I, I mean, but you know, from all accounts, Seve was a not an atrocious captain. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly inspirational, but... 
it was, you know, it, it was a madhouse behind the scenes, I think, at that Ryder Cup. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I really wonder whether it's just, whether it's that important. And in the end, you put your tee in the ground and you play. And if you play well, you play well and you win. And if you don't, you don't. So it's... A little bit simplistic, you think, Brian? Is there maybe well, subtly have more to do with it than Clates is perhaps suggesting there? You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it can it can it comes down to a guy holding a putt and a holding a putt in the end. It's it, that that that's absolutely true, absolutely true. But I think uh, you know, a bad captain can can cost you a Ryder Cup. I think we've seen that in. Uh, you know, in past years, I mean, we remember, you know, Hal Sutton and the things that, uh, you know, he did, uh, you know, putting that Tiger and Phil together and, uh, you know, that backfiring badly and uh, many other things. And Nick Faldo uh, as well the last time, you know, great player, great golfing brain, but just not a people person and not uh, not able to, uh, you know, organize a, a group of people and get them all rowing behind him. He, uh, he upset more people than anything else during the week and, uh, you know, got more things wrong that maybe that made the difference. So, you know, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with Mike in some in some way that you know at the end of the day it's the it's the players that uh, are the protagonists here. But uh, you know this is uh, not regular tournament golf, as as he said. You know other things come in come into play, and um, you know I think the captains have a big role to play. What do you reckon, Shaq? Overrated or underrated captain's job? Somewhere in between, probably. I think a lot of it uh, is is. Uh, I mean, look how you're pulled it out last time with what sounded like chaos with a lot of ball um so i i'm somewhere in between the two and uh i do get i i i am intrigued though by the effect that uh, azinger had and he obviously takes a lot more credit now uh for it and and uh, i don't know how important his pod system was but it seemed like he brought something that was different than Corey pavin or tom layman brought to the table and so I think in that sense, we, we have seen examples where it can make a difference. And Ben Crenshaw obviously had a, a positive influence, and, um, and, it, and, and we're, we're going to find out pretty soon on Tom Watson. The, the Watson pick seemed like such a stroke of genius at the time, Shaq, but it seems to me that with each passing week, it seemed like less and less of a good idea. Do you get that sense? Uh, I don't know. In a sense, though, I think that that having his uh, gravitas has been a positive in some ways. Just with with the team sort of falling apart uh, and and having all these issues and and this weird and the the early cutoff date, all the little controversies that have come up. He's done a very nice job of managing that. And I I, I that is where I sense that his uh, wisdom and experience and intelligence has paid off. Yeah, I'd agree with you there on that, Jeff. I think Watson's done pretty well. He's got egg all over his face, really, with the uh, with the Billy Horschel situation. You know, maybe through no fault of his own, really. I mean, yeah, it's not his. You fault. couldn't you couldn't pick Horschel, uh, you know, around the time he, uh, you know, he he had to pick him. But there, there's a, there's always a flip side to those captains' picks, and when they're when they're controversial, especially in you know, as we've seen in you know many times in past years, guys that have been questioned, guys that people are saying, well, hold on a second, you know, why do you why'd you pick Darren Clark and uh, and Lee Westwood in 2006, and while well, we know what happened there, and you know we had Ian Poulter picked by Nick Fowler in uh, 2008, and we we know what happened there, and uh, you know this it could have a a galvanizing effect on on these guys who've been picked to say, you know what, guys, you really got to set up, step up. Uh, you know, people are questioning whether you should really be on this team, and it might just uh, you know have a have a positive effect on say Webb Simpson or something like that. So uh, it remains to be seen. With, you, you do need to be careful about prodding a player who's out of form too much, don't you? Because, as you say, it can have the reverse effect and give them something to play for that perhaps they didn't didn't feel they had. 
before. Let's talk about uh, what might we might expect to unfold on the course itself. Clates, I wanted to ask you first, uh, well, maybe before that, your memories. When you played in Europe, I imagine the Ryder Cup was a topic of conversation amongst the players uh, fairly constantly. What was the sense of the Ryder Cup as a player on the European Tour? We have this sense that the European team is a far more bonded and, and has more to play for as a team than the Americans. Was that the feeling you got when you played there from the players? Yeah, I think so. And back in the 80s, it was a bigger event for the Europeans because they were, you know, they'd been so smashed up by the, sorry for the Europeans, and they'd been so smashed up by the Americans over the over the decades, really. It was, you know, Seve really made it a, a force of his will to, you know, to, to win and to make it a big deal and to show that they were, show that the European tour was the equal of the American tour, really. They were so tired of, you know, the Americans, well, Obviously, the Americans had the biggest tour in the world, but Seve's mission in life was to prove that the Europeans were as good, and the, the easiest and best way to show that was to win majors and win the Ryder Cup. So that became the you know, the event that he, he really drove, and it, so it was a it was a huge event because that was when they started winning in the eighties. Really, that you know the one at the Belfry was a hugely memorable week, really, because we'd all grown up just. The Americans were the superstars of golf, and there's no way the Europeans could win. And yeah, they were beating Torino's team. It was amazing, really. Did you go? And then, of course, happened in America. You know, two years later, it was even more amazing when they beat them at Muirfield Village. That was that was really the start of it. Well, it was kind of was the start of the Ryder Cup in a lot of ways, wasn't it, Brian? When when it became competitive. I mean, before that, it was kind of a nice outing every couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, '79. I think the Europeans came in and they got rightly walloped, and then you had that '81 team. I think everybody on the American team was a major winner or about to become a major winner. But I think the one that you know a lot of the Europeans uh, remember and has been sort of a real turning point for them was '83. Uh, Palm Beach Gardens where they lost but uh, you know they were looking around at the team room feeling sorry for themselves and Seve was the one I think who stood up and says we should be celebrating we nearly beat them we nearly beat them on American soil this is it's time to celebrate guys you know and uh, you know and they, you know as Mike referred to there they, they went out and they won you know they won the next one and, uh, and they won in 87 as well so you know it was knowing that maybe you can beat these guys was, was probably the uh, was probably the key to it that one in, uh, in, in, 80, in 83 and uh, you know now it's uh, you know the shoe is on the other foot now as it were in, in recent years with, uh, with so many European wins so many of them have been so close but there's been a few big wins for Europe too so uh, you know I think it's it's just uh, it's a great event great TV and uh, it's, it's just great for golf in general I mean I don't think we have to get too hung up on the uh on the golf course too much. I think they could play it down in the local uh, Muni, you know, and I think it would be uh, just as just as fascinating, really, you know. So uh, uh, it's so big as well that really there are very few places you can go as well that uh, you might like to have it. So, uh, you know, I just think it's, uh, it's a special event and even non-Europeans and non-Americans, I think, can, can, can get into it and, uh, and really enjoy it. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, most of the people I've down here, I think... The Ryder Cup's got a fair following here in Australia, don't you think, Clay? I think most yeah, people. I think, yeah, I think a lot of people are interested in it. Yeah, just because it is such uh, such yeah. enthralling golf. Of course, an event the size that you're talking about, Brian Kerr, comes with more than its fair share of politics, doesn't it? It is probably the biggest cash cow of the European Tour, but it puts them in this odd situation where their players, who many of whom play uh, a lot of golf in the states, they need to try and keep them to support the European Tour so it can continue to be successful. But they need those players who don't play enough events to still be on the Ryder Cup team. To keep it the uh, the big event that it is, and keep the money rolling in, it's a it's a yin and yang for the European Tour, the Ryder Cup, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really is a very delicate balance just to set the number of events these guys have to play just right, just to get them to, uh, you know, to, uh, to to qualify for this team. And um, you know, it's it's just hugely important for the uh, for the European Tour, you know, to have this uh, to have this money coming in every uh, every four years. I mean, they use this this to to keep tournaments going. I mean, they've really been struggling on the European Tour for for quite a, quite some time. And uh, I know that the uh, the profits from the, the Ryder Cup of the Clay Club were were ploughed back into you know keeping the Irish Open going for for many years when we uh, didn't have a title sponsor and we still don't have a title sponsor. We've got sort of a composite uh, sponsors now, and um, you know it, it goes into so many other parts of the game in the grassroots with the uh, with the PGA and the PGAs of Europe as well. So it uh, you know it's 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 really huge and really vitally important that uh, you know that the Ryder Cup successful in Europe continues to be successful in the Ryder Cup, so they can uh, you know sell it to those. Um, those big uh, partners, as they call them, and yes, sorry, Jack. Well, no, and so uh, therefore we uh, have to see them play uh, probably the weakest course at Glen Eagles. Is that a, a fair assumption? And I mean, the, several of the players have, have not been fans, uh, having played there in the past. Is that uh, and 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 I'm frankly, I don't know. Maybe the course doesn't matter as much as as uh, some of us would like to to think as well. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a question. It's been, no, it's been, yeah, I mean, the course has, you know, taken a lot of criticism over the years. I remember there was talk of Darren Clark being the, uh, been the captain a few years ago, and yeah. uh, we think it was a couple of years before that where he just really laid into uh, Glen Eagles, you know, about it being one of the worst courses he'd ever played. And uh, you know, I don't think that had any effect on the uh, the final outcome in the in the whole captaincy stakes. It would have been interesting to hear him uh, talk about the course if he had become Ryder Cup captain and uh, do a little bit of an about turn on that, maybe. But uh, uh, yeah, it's you know, you're right. I mean, the uh, it's not the greatest uh, it's not the greatest golf course at Glen Eagles even, and uh, Certainly not anywhere near close to one of the best golf courses in Scotland, but it's 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 got everything that you could possibly need for a Ryder Cup with the hotel on site and the the amount of space there is, and uh, you know it's it's just a, a mammoth mammoth event now, and uh, you know it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. Just the uh, the number of people going to it and the uh, number of media that are accredited to it and all the things that go into it. And um, you know, I think it's it's um, the golf course again. I mean, I think they could really play it anywhere, and it'll still be a great event. We, yeah, we often lament this on on this show, Brian, is that professional golf is more and more moves away from the great golf course, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. Technology is another one of our favorite mm. things to bang on about. But is there is there much in that? Do you, do you think? I mean, obviously. The things that I suppose we ignore in that argument is exactly what you point out there. The logistics required to host a major professional golf tournament these days are extraordinary, aren't they? Lots of the old classic courses just don't have the space required. We saw it at Merion last year, didn't we, for the US Open? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was uh, was wonderful to see the uh, you know the U.S. Open played at Marion. You know, I I really enjoyed that tournament. But uh, you know, you're right. Uh, just every time you know people wonder about you know say talking about the Irish Open here. You know, why don't you play it on the you know the Great Links courses? You know, well, there's you know there's a little bit of a problem there, and that was highlighted uh, you know this week by the decision by the Royal and Ancient. You know, to to allow women members. You know, two of our you know Port Marnock one uh, being you know one of the most prestigious courses in uh, in in the country is an all male club and um because there's government money going into the Irish Open while it's you know it's not PC uh for the government to be seen to be putting uh, money into a tournament on a course where uh, you know women uh, women are are not allowed to become members so uh, you know the 
these questions also come into uh, the equation and uh, we can see with the uh, decision by the Royal and Ancient uh, you know this week that uh, you know they're the beginning to um, take these things into account with the uh, you know people like HSBC saying look guys you know you're going to have to do something about uh, about these rules and uh, take a look at those three courses on the uh, on the road that, uh, that don't allow women so you know there's a lot of politics goes on in the background a lot of money is being uh, changes hands and, uh, and they need this money to keep going so you know it'll be interesting to see uh, you know what happens with the uh, with the open courses I'm sure Jeff has a view on it yes Shaq <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I mean, I would love to see the old course host the uh, the Ryder Cup, something like that. And I understand that we have a lot of issues, but it generally comes down to whether a place now has another golf course, and then whether people are willing to tolerate that golf course being pummeled and, and ruined for six months, depending on the location. Um, but at the same time, the PGA Tour has done a nice job going back to some venues, you know, this year and. Uh, with with uh, Cherry Hills and going to the Ridgewoods of the world, so there there are people who are trying. It's just that um, it's not just the the technology issue. It's it's definitely the space and whether some of these clubs want to put up with with the nonsense. I mean, I'm thrilled that Royal Portrush wants to do this. I'm not thrilled that they have to build two new holes, but Brian's convinced me that they're going to be uh, they're going to be good holes and or at least they're on interesting terrain. So uh, that's that's pretty exciting um, if it all comes together. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting. I mean, what they're doing at Port Rush. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're they're building two new holes there, and you know, the, if you go back and look at the history of that 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 golf club and, and that golf course, you know, I was looking back at old maps, and you're going, well, where's that? Oh, that hole disappeared uh, back in the te- you know 1910 mm-hmm. or whatever. That hole disappeared in 1920, and they and they found the kind of like a couple of old holes down there on the uh, on the valley course as well. I think they're going to be doing something with those. So you know, these things, you know, it's 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 a living thing, you know, a golf course. Things things change and uh, move on, and things are improved, and um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing that they're uh, that they're making changes. I don't always agree with the uh, the amount of lengthening that goes on the this um, treatment that they give uh, some of the courses mm. on the. Uh, on the open road and the um the and treatment the, uh, the issue the a lot of treatment and uh, you know this the True. issue of the uh, obviously the issue of the the issue of the golf ball and what's been done what's been done with that you know and uh, uh, you know missing the bus on that so um you know this there's just, there's a lot of a lot of things that uh, at stake here but i think uh, you know change is is, is is sometimes good boy haven't you opened a can of worms there, bro. Oh, yeah. Standing <laughs> Clay, she made a very good point behind the scenes. Who are the 15% who voted against uh, women in the R? I wonder if they'll ever put their hands up publicly and admit that they... Uh, I, mean, I mean, you just you wonder what they think about that. I mean, seriously, I mean... 15% is pretty high, isn't it? You, you might have thought well, maybe I mean, five, but wow. I mean, how could you possibly vote against admitting women into a... I mean, it just it staggers. I mean, you know, in Australia, there are no male golf clubs, so it's just another thing we have here. They're all male city clubs, business clubs that women rail against, rightly. But it's more of a British and American thing, the all-male club. But down here, it's just staggering that you can have, you know, in this day and age, you can have that. just amazes me. Um, yeah, well, yes, you're right. We don't have that so much here, but I think you're right. They're, they're very defensive about it in America in places, aren't they, Shaq? It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a, a civil rights thing. It's got nothing to do with golf. It becomes a, you know, people should have the right to make their own choices as to who they hang out with. And there are some compelling points in that argument i must say there are but it's it's 
become less of an issue in that if you if you don't want to take public money and be a public place, uh, people aren't too bothered here that if you do whatever you want to do. If you want to be in the limelight and make a lot of money off hosting big tournaments, um, uh, it seems like people have just come to the agreement, okay, well then if you're going to be that kind of club and you're going to be in a, a public facility essentially for a week, then you need to... Uh, you need to have some different rules, and it seems to me that's uh, a, a pretty common sense delineation, and it seems to be working pretty well now. That that's that's kind of where we're at. It, it, Brian's right, though, isn't he? It's the money that drives these things. When HSBC started making noises that publicly yeah. they were having trouble supporting some of these events played at these clubs, that then has an impact. You can complain about it all you like from a moral a moral standpoint, but as soon as the money becomes involved, Brian, uh, then it becomes important. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think also, I mean, the 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 return to the Olympic Games is, is is another huge factor in this as well. I think you know, I mean, obviously that's another you know huge cash cow for uh, for golf, and you know, with the number of people uh, joining golf clubs, you know, shrinking all the time, and and, and playing casual golf and uh, memberships, maybe not uh, participation certainly, but memberships being down. You know, it's important to get uh, you know as many uh, as many women and young girls uh, you know into the game and. And to make it uh, attractive and to be seen to be uh, uh, attractive and uh, to be supported by um, you know uh, all the big uh, the major organisations. So uh, you know there was a point made by the um, the chief executive of the Irish Ladies Golf Union this week and the Irish Independent, just saying you know welcoming the, uh, the decision of the Royal and Ancient, but also saying you know what the, these guys are uh, they're, they're trying to uh, they're doing their best to, to to grow the game and being very supportive of us but I think the US Open being played on a you know a uh, at the same golf course uh, this year, but for men and women in, in back-to-back weeks, I think that was a you know a significant move for for the game. I think that was done you know for a reason, and uh, you know we're we're building up to the Olympics here, and I think uh, you know this is also a you know a huge part of uh, what why that vote was taken uh, this week. There's a real lot going on in the background, isn't there, Jeff? Will we be playing a 15-hole golf course in Rio when the Olympics rolls around? <laughs> <laughs> what is going um, on? I I uh, without without. <laughs> Without breaking well, any confidences, how's it? Working? I uh, I just uh, yeah. Would they ask the marathon course to be um, shorter? And yeah, I, I just the thing that is so painful for me is I actually walked the land where those holes were, and uh, you you pop into the trees and there's just there's just trash everywhere. Then you got to the water that that comes up to the golf course and 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 it's just just littered with crap. It's just awful. So and I, I mean I'm very pro environment. I uh, I frankly uh, I'm I side with some of these people sometimes when when they're trying to protect things, but it, it, this is just a, a political situation, and it's just a it has nothing to do with the actual uh, environment, the animals, and and that's that just bothers me on a number of levels. Obviously, it undermines uh, the work of environmentalists in other cases. It, it undermines Rio's place as as trying to uh, make a good impression. And it's just sad to see that this is uh, uh, kind of what it's come down to, and this will be the legacy of the place. But I, I, they're, they're forging ahead, building the holes, and um, I don't think it will ultimately uh, have a, a, a negative impact on the design. We're still confident I hope. That, the, that the event will be able to go ahead, the course will be ready in time. That's been a genuine concern, hasn't it? Will there be a golf course to play? Oh yeah, there'll be a course. It's just a, it, and we've talked about it with Gil when he was on the show. That that the the style of design that that we do and he does is, is tends to have an older 
uh, aged look to it, even when it's new and it's it's rustic and it's it's uh, natural and and the less time you have to to um, to to create that and get that sensibility of the course, it, the, just the more raw it will look. And knowing that the world's going to be looking at this course, it's just uh, disappointing that it it will probably look absolutely brilliant a year after the Olympics because just everything will have come in. Uh, native plants and different things will have uh, just had their chance to get established. I remember talking to Gil not long after the, the thing when we had him on the show, Jeff, and just feeling sorry for him. He was so happy and really didn't understand the storm he was about to ride into yeah. really, with uh, yeah. dealing with the Olympics. Brian, what's your take on the whole Olympic golf? We've talked about it here on the show before. I don't see it doing a whole lot for golf, but a lot of people do. Uh, what's your sense of golf in the Olympics more broadly? Will it be a positive for the game. You don't hear a lot of players saying that they can't wait to get to the Olympics and this sort of thing, but that might change closer to the day, I guess. Yeah, well, it's, you know, uh, there isn't a huge amount of excitement about golf in the Olympics here. I really don't feel it. You know, I mean, we've any reference to the Olympics uh, and golf over here has been in relation to uh, Rory McIlroy and what he was going to do and who he was going to play for. And it's it's had that connotation for from the beginning. So really, it's, you know, it's it's hard to get enthusiastic about it at the moment. I'm sure when, you know, when the uh, the Olympics roll around and there's a, a gold medal up for up for grabs and maybe we have a few players that we really, uh, you know, uh, really enjoy watching. Maybe going for that. Uh, it, it'll be interesting. Maybe the format, you know, isn't the isn't the greatest format. Maybe a team format might be uh, might be a more interesting way to go with that. But um, or or match play rather than rather than rather than stroke play. I think that might make it more exciting. But um, you know, at the moment, uh, I think the jury's out really uh, over here on uh, on the Olympic Games and. Um, you know, we'll we're going to have Rory McIlroy there almost certainly, and uh, probably Graham McDonald. But uh, you know, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Certainly, I think it's it's positive that uh, you know golf's going to be uh, uh, showcased. Uh, you know, all over the planet for um, you know for a week in uh, in twenty uh, in, in twenty sixteen. So I suppose that's a good thing. You're doing a fabulous job of ingratiating yourself here, Brian. All the points that we've made here previously. I think you've been listening and. Uh Figured out a way to, to worm your way no. into, our, into our good books. All sentiments <laughs> being expressed here before. Clates, uh, I actually misspoke a little earlier. I've spoken to one player who's excited about the Olympics, Rebecca Artis, one of our ladies European tour players down here. In yeah. Her whole life is about trying to get to the Olympics, so she thinks it's fantastic. Do you get that sense from any of the other players, the Olympics, and how important that might be? Oh, well, I think the girls are. I mean, Menji Lee's obviously, if they picked a team now, she would be in it. And I, Sue Oh, who's her. Uh, Young mate, contemporary, she's excited about trying to get in the team and Kay Weber, we assume, will be in it. So they're excited. I, I, I suspect the guys are less excited. I don't think – I've never heard anyone – I mean, Finchie's going to be the captain, so I think he's excited to go to the Olympics. But I, I, my guess is it's far down the list of priorities, but, it's you know, it's a ways away. And it, I mean, Brian's point is right. I mean, we're, we're going to drive this bus off the cliff and everyone knows it's the wrong format and no one's going to change it. It's just madness, really. Yeah, you know, I mean, come up with something interesting. I mean, match play is such a great game. T- team match play would be so much more fun. And, you know, boy, boy, you could have a mixed event. You could have, you know, Carrie Webb and Adam Scott playing, you know, Lexi Thompson and Tiger Woods. I mean, it would be an unbelievable match to watch. It would be great fun. But just a four-round stroke play, I mean, boy, it's so unimaginative and dull. And well, there's, there's no excitement within golf. It's hard to imagine there'll be much coming from outside of golf. Um yeah, we were talking about Joe last week, Joe Ogilvy's idea about the, the senior tour and completely changing up the way the game is and making it just just moving it away from this regular four-round stroke play tournament deal, which is gets pretty tiring after 
Week after week, Indeed, really. Indeed, which to bring it back to the Ryder Cup is one of the reasons we love the Ryder Cup, Brian. Yeah. With a couple of days to go, uh, I'm assuming this isn't this isn't your first Ryder Cup, I imagine, in person. What are you looking forward to no. most? Uh, I'm looking for. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what way things are set up on the golf course. But also, I believe that you know the first tee uh, situation could be, you know, extremely interesting as regards the atmosphere. You know, I think there might be a few surprises there, and what's and what's going to happen. Uh, I, I'm very interested to see, uh, you know, the um, the pairings that McGinley puts out. The um, you know the McIlroy McDowell situation is an interesting one, as well. Uh, Tom Watson, you know, he's uh, he's a feisty. Uh, sort of character, you know. I'm sure he'll be, uh, you know, making a few good points in the, in the press room as well. I think it could get, uh, I think it could get quite interesting. You know, I think, uh, I think the Europeans might have one of those pod systems in place that, uh, you know, that Azinger brought in a few years ago. Just looking at the, uh, you know, the uh, the prelim interview schedule is is out there. You know, and they're going in threes, and you know, you start thinking Bjorn Donaldson Westwood. You know, that's an interesting uh, little uh, little threesome there. You know, Stenson Dubuisson McDowell again. You know, guys that you know you think you know there might be there might be pairings there. McElroy Garcia Gallagher, you know. Uh, so um, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I think the uh, the crowd's going to be great. I think uh, you know they're looking for noise. They're um, it's just it's just a lot of a lot of unknowns. Uh, you know whether McGinley's just over egged it in terms of overthinking things, and maybe Tom Watson's uh, uh, stature and his his passion maybe in that team room and saying to the guys, "Hey, look, you know, where's your pride?" You know, like, we're not going to get we're not going to get done on this again, and just to see what kind of uh, reaction he can get from uh, from those American players and those uh, and those picks that he's made as well. You know, are, are being questioned. So uh, it's there's a lot of uh, a lot of factors uh, to look forward to, and um, the weather as well. I wonder where we're going to get fog. Will we finish oh. on Sunday? It's all it's all very interesting. Mm. And will we we'll get the singing at the first tee? I imagine, which is always a highlight of the European Ryder Cups, isn't it? I remember that. A couple of years ago, that was fantastic stuff. There's only two Molinaris, I think. Was the yeah. was that the song on the first? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna get plenty of singing. The uh, the Scots won't be uh, won't be behind the Welsh in the, in that. I don't think. What did they give Tiger that year, Jeff? Was it e- Elands a European? I think they were singing on the first team. Oh, yeah. 2009, they were. Yeah, uh, giving it to him, which was wonderful to see. Brian, who's going to win? I'm going to ask you all this, so you get a chance to have a think about that. Shaq and Clates, who's going to win? Well, I was pretty convinced for have been for a while that uh, you know Europe are going to win this uh, win this Ryder Cup. I don't know by how much, but uh, I think they will win. Um, I think uh, possibly it might be a little bit closer than we uh, me imagine. Maybe uh, a month ago when the Americans were dropping like flies, but uh, you know I think uh, you know it has been close in the past. It will be close again. But Europe, uh, you know, late September, Scotland, bad weather. The McGinley factor, the fact that you know the Europeans, a lot of them are playing pretty well. You got Rory McIlroy there. I just think uh, Europe are going to do it. Shaq, uh, I like Europe, but I don't think it's going to be the route that some people uh, seem to believe it'll be. Just because uh, I think the Europeans under are under a lot of pressure, and I think that the uh, everything that Brian's talked about with the scale of the event, the noise, the uh, the hype factor. Uh, whereas the Americans are going in with with not a lot of people really too uh, energized about it, I think is going to put a lot of pressure on uh, Team Lake Nona. Excuse me, Team Europe. Uh, and um, <laughs> nicely done, Shaq. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just read that that Poulter and Stenson and McDowell are all out hitting balls at Lake Nona, and it's, it's just very strange. But um, so I, I I think it'll be more competitive, and we have some Americans who are. Who are who are playing decently, uh, and and a few that are refreshed. I thought 
few of the uh, Europeans uh, looked very uh, burned out, and I also thought, uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, this Lee Westwood losing weight thing is strange to me. Uh, there, there are a lot of uh, there are more questions about the European team than there were uh, a few months ago. So I think that makes it that's going to make it interesting. Funny you should say that about the Lake Nine thing. Wasn't it only about ten or twelve years ago? Cal Kavecki has said, "Why would I want to fly around the world to play against a bunch of blokes <laughs> I live next door to?" About the Presidents Cup. Yeah. Here we are, fifteen years later, and this is what we're saying about the Ryder Cup. It's a, it's a funny, yeah. old, funny old world, isn't it? Clates, you got any sense of who might win, or are you a bit like me? Kind, of, I want the Europeans to win, but as long as it's a good close match, I'm not really that fast. Yeah, I mean, I've always uh, supported the European teams I've played there, but I, mean, I, I always think the Americans are going to win. They just always look better to me, but you know, I think the Europeans have arguably four, the four best players in the world playing for them. So, um, I mean, Macro is obviously great, and you know, perhaps it depends on how well he plays. If he goes out there and wins four or five points, it's going to be awfully hard for the Americans to do something. But, I mean, Sergio is such a great player. He's really turned his game around the last year or so. He's, he's played so well the last year. And loves the rest Loves the Ryder Cup. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, Jim Furyk's, a, you know, as good as Jim Furyk is, he hasn't won a tournament in however long. So, so it's four years. Yeah. yeah. D- does yeah, that matter so much in match play mm. plates, one on one or two on uh, two? I wonder. I um, well, it's, it's, it's 18 hole match play. So yeah. Peter O'Malley can beat, and Nick O'Hearn can beat Tiger Woods in the world match plays. Twice, I think. Yeah. Maybe not. Yep. So it's a. Um, you know, it's a, it's eighteen hole match play, yeah. and it's a putt here or there. And Elizabeth two years ago was you know two putts away from being the biggest idiot in the world, and he's a hero. So so it's that's how it works really, and it will come down to a few putts here and there, and, yeah. and we'll see. You know, it's fade as much as anything. Yeah, and we'll- interesting to see what we might get from Patrick Reed. Uh, I don't know if there's an American perspective on that. He's you know he got a lot of criticism for his. You know, top five player in the world comments uh, early in the year. You know, he's a guy who's he's going to want to prove himself, Jeff. I think. I think he's going to play very little. Uh, would be my guess. I don't think Captain Watson likes him at all, <laughs> from what I've been able to gather. In a in a way, that was a bit of a shame, though, wasn't it? Jack? I mean, they got him right as he walked off the golf course when he said, "No, mis- it wasn't." He mistake, said it the night. That's right. He the mis- said the it the night was before. To, to repeat yeah. it. That's right. I yeah. <laughs> the first time it. somebody in his. His uh, entourage should have pulled him aside and said, you know, that was great that you said that to Dan Hicks, but you might think about uh, sitting on that one for a little while and not, not using that again. It was, it was so good, I would, I would just wouldn't use it again. What, um, what was the other? <laughs> but he doesn't have anybody like that. Didn't, they, didn't he nominate as McDowell as one of the other four, the other four from memory? Well, somebody I said to him, so, who, yeah. "Who are the rest in the? Yeah, if you're one, Rory? who are the rest?" And, and, and he's, he nominated Woods, Dustin Johnson, somebody, and Graham McDowell. I think so. Perhaps we uh, won't yeah. see him play McDowell in the singles. McDowell. Might well, and don't for, don't forget that no, he's Rory. talking about having his wife caddy too. What's she? Three months removed from having the baby? Uh, something like that. Maybe four. Girl in the team room. How's that going to go down? Bro? Uh, well, she. Yeah, it's it's. Well, the wives are very involved in the whole thing anyway. Too probably too involved, uh, but. Uh, I just think that'll be a fascinating thing if she ends up catting for him. Uh, yeah. Reminds me. One I mean, which thing. outfit does she wear? Does she go with the <laughs> wag outfit? Or, yeah, it's a lot of questions. She's wearing the evening dress so that she's ready to go. No. Um, <laughs> an interesting thing that Des, uh, on that podcast which I listened to with, uh, with Des Smith the other day, Brian, um, Joe, the host, was saying that someone in the know, that's all he just said, in the know, had told him that if you watch the caddies closely on the European side versus the American side, the American caddies don't care about the Ryder Cup, the European caddies do. So I'm really interested to mm. have a look at that. 
Uh, this yeah, the, sort of the biggest party afterwards is when they're they're the guys cheerleading, they're the guys leading the uh, leading the show. Yeah, absolutely. Those caddies are uh, you know are huge. Yeah, a Ryder Cup in Europe, Brian. You're very lucky. It'd be a wonderful event to go to. I think probably even more so than than in the states. So uh, I hope you have a terrific week. We might have try and have a chat to you afterwards. Though. We're also trying to get Gil Caps to come and have a chat to us after the Ryder Cup as well. But thanks very for taking good. some time, tomate. It's been fantastic. Not at all. Pleasure. I'll go and get the Gore-Tex uh, packed away in the yeah. case now. <laughs> just, just in case, you never, you never know. Uh, Brian Kerr from the Irish Golf Desk, and we're going to wrap it up here. Jeff Shackford, been great to have you aboard as always. I'm sure you're going to enjoy the Ryder Cup this week. Thank you, and thank you, Brian, for doing this. No pleasure. And Clayton's down there in Melbourne. I know you've got a tea time to get to, so we'll let you go as well. Thanks, mate. I enjoyed it. Nice to talk to you, Brian. And and you. Thank you, Mike. Take That's care. Fun. Fantastic. And that wraps it up for episode 46. I think it is of State of the Game. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. We will be back to do it all again after the Ryder Cup's over and we know what the result is. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.